the theme that runs through everything that I do is storytelling. Um, I think whether you're playing a classical piece or a piece of musical theatre or whether you're singing a song, um, you're telling a story, you know, and, and even when I, I love watching dance and one of the reasons that I love watching dance is, first of all, I don't know anything about it, so I can't okay. critique it and I can't comment on it, but it's also storytelling. You know, the dancer is telling a story through what he or she is is doing. Um, and that is, I suppose that's the core of, of what attracts me to art, is, is the storytelling, the narrative. This is the first part of my interview with the incredible Dominique Ferris, pianist, Steinway artist and producer. It's so lovely to see you again on Zoom. Absolutely. It's been a while, hasn't it? I can't remember when the last one we did was. It's got to be a couple of years, 18 months. Yeah, well, it's long. I think it was just after lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we spoke about, yeah, we spoke about this amazing projects that you did during lockdown. And, but in the meantime, you've, you've really been so busy and I follow you on Instagram and I see the amazing things that you do. Do you know, it's, it's very interesting. I was thinking just about, just before we started the last chat that we had and, and the things that we talked about. And, um, it's amazing how the landscape of the entertainment world has changed since then. It, it, it's sort of, you know, people sort of often ask, is it back to how it was before the lockdown? And I think the answer is yes, but it's in a different way. You know, it, 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 I think the attitude of the public and concert going is a little bit different. It's very difficult to explain, but the dynamic is just changed ever so slightly. You know, I'm so glad you you mentioned that because the project that I did during lockdown, I really asked people, "What do you think will happen? How would you know? How will it be afterwards? Do you think people will attend concerts more, or do you think you know this online business will be more sort of uh, you know preferred?" And so this is interesting that you say that it is the same, yet, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than it was. Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of joy. There's an element of okay. not, taking, not taking the live world for granted, because I think, you know, we were, we were in this awful place and, and it was all taken away from us. And that extends beyond the entertainment world that, you know, into hospitality, you know, yeah. so many people had to restructure their, their way of life entirely. Um, but I think in, in terms of a direct impact, I think in terms of musicians, producers, um, technical production, people, lighting, sound, all of that, um, there was nowhere that they could turn, you know. So I think when the live world did come back, obviously there was that, there was that time where we were having to abide by lots of restrictions and social yeah. distancing and all of that. Um, but I think now that we are, I think people are still very COVID conscious um, mm -hmm. as they should be. But I think now it's, you know, that there was that cliche wasn't there of it has to become a way of life. And I, and I think yeah. that that's exactly what has happened. You know, people are still very aware of it. Um, I had COVID again about six weeks ago, but you, really? you, know, you just sort of, you, you move through it, you know, and you, and you sort of carry on and, and, and move forward as best you can. Um, but I think yeah, in terms of the live world, I think a lot of shows came back. It's only more recently though, that tour promoters have had the confidence to invest in big arena tours. I think oh, really? Yeah, I think there are a lot of one-off shows that were coming back. I mean, as soon as we came out of lockdown, there were a lot of concerts, you know, orchestral concerts, um, you know, more sort of medium-scale local events, that sort of thing. But if you look at the the tour the tour schedules of uh, you know headline artists uh, and, and big arena tours like the Hans Zimmer tour, or later this year we, we're doing our Elvis live on screen tour again. And, you know, when COVID hit, we were sort of thinking, will, will this will this ever come back? Will we ever be able to tour like we did before? Um, and uh, thankfully now, I think we are we are back into a place where, where we can. So that's good news. <laughs> yeah. 
But do you think also from other from an artist point of view that you do things a little bit differently now? You know that you had this time to you had this free time really because everybody that I spoke to said in a way they also enjoyed the time because they could do what they wanted to do and that that year of doing that 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 also is a was a growth period uh, for an artist to really think about why they're doing it and and what they are doing absolutely i think a lot of creative people um are they have to immerse themselves into something they have to have a project to be connected with um and that's where they invest their energy in the present moment i think when that stops when that when that uh, entity that you're investing your energy into is is vanished which is what happened in 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 covid i think everyone is then in this sort of free free zone and and that if you use that time in the right way that is where you can really look inside yourself and be very objective and break everything down i think that's always the the trap that creatives fall into i think when anything happens that that's negative some it it, it turns into this drama how am i going to cope with this yeah. oh my gosh i need to sort this out whereas if you use covid as an example and and step back from that immersive idea of always being involved in shows going from the recording studio to the um theater to then we're going here to do press and then we're doing this there's always that schedule and you're being governed by that schedule you know you're being you, you're almost a slave to your diary to your calendar you know you're going from this place to this place to this place and if you want a vacation you have to actively say you know i want this week off and most of the time people are still on their phones they're still doing work they're still responding to emails but obviously covid gave us that forced time of not having any of that and i think a lot of people obviously financially it was difficult of course yeah. it was because the income wasn't there the work wasn't there but in terms of looking inside yourself in terms of your actual being leaving work out of the picture you know giving each person that time to actually reflect and um uh be um it's almost like a, a, a sort of everything stops and then you look inside yourself and then you sort of say well you know this is what it's like because i can now look at this objectively um how can i break this down what are the changes that i can make in terms of moving forward in case this happens again maybe um or you know how can i change elements of my lifestyle because a lot of people focused on health and fitness um during covid particularly in my world in the musicians world um and you know it gave that it gave the most precious thing which is time you know and everyone complains oh my gosh i don't have time to do this i don't have time to do that and uh i think one of the things we spoke about on our last call was um that video that the will meet again video where yeah. um you know where we got all the different west ends artists together and and it was you know in a normal situation that would never be possible because nobody would have the time to do that um whereas it was a very there, there was an amazing camaraderie in the industry at the time because everyone wanted to help each other and everyone wanted to 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 come together and and, and spread joy and uh i think it was a wonderful time for that and i really hope i mean i certainly took a lot away from it i i operate very differently um not differently but i'm very mindful of certain okay. things yeah. maybe i wasn't beforehand and i think that will be true of true true of a lot of people that do that do the same thing yeah well even now after all this time i still speak to people and as sometimes i would ask about a specific project and the project was born during lockdown you know it's just, and still now there are things that come from that period so this is, is i think this is, must have been a, also a very creative time for for many artists you know because they had this rest or this quiet time to really uh think about things and and come up with new ideas so maybe yeah. it was in a way something positive came out of it also 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's the physical entity of like, you know, going to this place, going to that place. But I think the most important thing is, is to quieten the mind, you know, mm. and, and this is very, this is a very important thing to do in everyday life if you want to be creative, because that is when you can really, really hone in and, and allow connection, you know, and, yeah. and allow the, the soul to connect with what you're trying to create and allow those channels of inspiration um, mm. to be open. And uh, I've spoken to a lot of wonderful musicians and creators and artists in the past, as I'm sure you have, about that very topic, about that keeping keeping those channels of inspiration open to allow um, to allow that that inspiration to really take form and, and create something. For me, it's being by the water. Um, I love to be by the water. I find it a very sort of meditative experience. And it allows me to quieten the mind. You know, you turn the phone off. I think technology can be very helpful, but I think it can be a, a big distraction as well. Mm. Um, so I think getting all that out of the way and really, really listening to your to, to your inner voice. I think that's um, that's a very, very important way of, of, of trying to reach the core of what you're trying to create and then from there obviously once you've got that nucleus of an idea of or, or whatever that idea may be you can then use you know more technical measures to to, to build on that and, and 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 make it into into something something else you know but I, I think it was a very very interesting time um i know a lot of people that uh the the you know, performance anxiety, all of these things, and they really worked on that during COVID, and now they feel a lot more settled in certain aspects of their performance or their writing or their production or, or whatever it is they do. You know. But now, Dominic, you you grew up in a in a showbiz world. I mean, uh, your dad was involved in the Beatles, and your mum's also a. Um, a performer or a or a, an, an artist yeah. yeah so tell me about this beetle connection that you have <laughs> well here actually i've got my abbey road oh wow in my in my office um yeah. because my dad worked there for 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 quite a few years and he was very lucky to work there in i suppose what is the golden age of of you know, Abbey Road, which is during the time of the Beatles, you know, and uh, he was there during the end of the of, of the Beatles um, recording, because if we think of the Beatles, the actual time that they recorded was was only a seven or seven and a half year period, you know, or really? eight year period. Mm. And yet, you know, these songs have gone on to become some of the most mm. legendary songs ever released. Um, and he was there towards the end of that era, so 1970, which was the Let It Be era. So he was there during that time. And uh, some of the recordings for Let It Be were done at a different studio, but they were mixed at Abbey Road. And it was the mixes of those songs that my dad was involved with um, at Abbey Road. And and even when you go into Abbey Road now, you know, I do a lot of sessions there and, and you go in there and there's still that, it's amazing how of the senses when you think of the different senses there's the, the sense of smell you know can can take you straight back to a place and straight back to a time faster than anything else it's a very quick trigger and um he says that going back to abbey road you know there's that element of how it was and when you go into the studio like studio two which is the room that the beatles recorded in uh they've kept everything pretty much the same you yeah. Know? yeah yeah it's you know and, and and there's still a colleague of my dad's that was there when he was there who still works there now his name is Lester Smith and uh, Lester is the head of microphones he looks after all the microphones if something goes wrong with these vintage microphones he's the one that has to repair them and and and, and, uh, and work it all out you know so um he occasionally would take us into the studio and say, well, that's where John Lennon stood when he recorded this. This is where Paul McCartney oh, wow. stood. So, yeah, it was, and, and my mum as well, Gloria, Glo Macari, um, she uh, is a singer, still is a singer, and was a songwriter, and she wrote with my dad, Roger, and uh, they wrote for a producer called Mickey Most, 
um, who was with Rack Records, and uh, they so Rack Studios is actually quite near Abbey Road. It's just a few blocks blocks away in St John's Wood. And uh, Mickey Most was a, was a huge producer in his day. You know, very very successful. Had bands like Hot Chocolate, Susie Quattro, um, Smokey Arrows, and it was actually Smokey and the Arrows that my parents wrote for, um, and a band called Racy as well. And uh, they had hits in the 70s. Um, and it was, a, I mean, it was a very, very different time in the record industry. I mean, obviously, it's changing year on year now. But it was a very, they always say that it was a very magical time of, of you know, just going in there and having access to someone that had such an influence on the music industry. Um, and of course, back then, that was the time when, I mean, bands were coming in, but, you know, my mum and dad always talk about the times that, you know, because after my dad worked at Abbey Road, he then went to EMI to become a producer for the record label EMI, which was in Manchester Square in London. And, um, you know, an artist would come in and he would just arrange an orchestra. And then the next day there would be an orchestra sitting at the studio. You know, So it was, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's how things were done then. You know, it's, it's obviously changed a lot. But it was an ama amazing influence to grow up surrounded by music. You know, I think, um, I, know, I never, I think we talked about this on, on our last call, but I never really um, made a conscious decision that... I wanted to do music, you know, I never wanted to, I never said, right, I'm going to go and train and, and, and you know, go to a music conservatoire. Um, it happened very organically, I think. Um, you know, I think the, the trap that a lot of parents and young people fall into now is that, or maybe this has always been the case, but it just wasn't the case for me. It, you know, it, it, they seem to think there's this formula, you know, if you, you have to, the grades and then you have to go to music college and then you have to have a music degree i mean in my opinion that that's not the case at all i, I think you i think the most important thing is being exposed to the music that you have a passion for and to have the right people around you to have the right mentors around you you know i think that's um that's key because uh, that's when you need to make your mistakes at a young age because i think in your teens and in your 20s you know that's when you can make the mistakes that you might not be able to make or well, they would have a greater impact if you made that same mistake in your thirties or whatever when 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 you're in a more established time. So I think I was very lucky to have um, that pop influence from my parents and being immersed in 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 the, the sort of pop genre, the pop way, um, with a balance between when I was at school. I was exposed to this wonderful choral music in English cathedral choral music, which is still my passion. Um, I haven't, you know, I don't listen to it very often, but again, that's another trigger for me. You know, when I hear it, it just takes me right back to that time. Um, and I guess I was very lucky to have incredible musical mentors, uh, when I was young. Um, one of them, his name is Michael Main. I'm actually seeing him in a couple of weeks. He's coming to, he's coming to be a guest in one of my concerts. Um, and he, you know, he had more of an influence on me thinking back than any college, any conservatoire, you know, because it's that one person that's there at the right time. And I had more musical mentors as I was growing up. Um, so he was my first. Then I had another um, called Nicholas Searles in my, in my teen years. So he was the one that really was focused on technique because he knew what would be expected of me in a few years time if I was gonna continue music. Um, so he was the one that really, really laid it down and said, look, if you want to do this, we're going to go right back to basics. This is what we need to do. And then when I got to the Royal College of Music in London, which is where I did my music degree, um, I had another wonderful professor, Nigel Clayton, um, who, again, then provides that next stage. So yeah. I think every mentor in a young person's life has their part, but they also have their time. Mm -hmm. And I think the timing is very, very important because it's the match between the personality and the influence that they can, they can have on a person. But the, the age of the person that they're mentoring is also very, very important because if you've got the right mentor, but at the wrong time, you, oh, yeah. you might not have the, the, the same rapport with them as if they come, you know, at the right time.
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that that's you know I was very lucky with. I, I think you know. Well, yeah, this is what I hear. Well, so often is this mentor, this one person that saw something or that that inspired something in a in an artist. And uh, I actually spoke to a, a South African pianist, and he told me about his teacher in in high school that uh, you know sort of um, inspired him and and opened up a world of classical music. And by accident, she heard the interview. She did never knew this. She never knew that she inspired him, and she heard it then uh, on, on on the interview. So that was so great for me That's that cool. she that she then realized that she was his his inspiration. Yeah. And I think it's so so important that these people that that come on an artist's way, you know, that they that they are there, and it is like you say, they have to be there at the right time. I think so, yeah, yeah. And at the time, like I remember that Nicholas Searles, who I just spoke about, who was the my, my sort of second mentor, if you like. At the time, because I'd come from this world of being mentored by Michael, and Michael Main was was um, it, it was it was just this whole world of it. Very, he had a huge personality, very exciting, an impresario. And that was when I was very young, you know, and I was exposed to this whole world of choral music. And and um, he taught me to, the piano and the church organ, and it was this whole world that that was a bit of a a bit of a fairground, you know. It was just you know you go into choir rehearsals and sing West Side Story at nine years old. It's like oh my gosh, could you have? Could you have a better introduction yeah, <laughs> to yeah. the music industry? You know, and and um, I was very lucky in that sense. But then once I, when I was about age twelve or thirteen, that's when I changed school from my my prep school, St Christopher's, to my my secondary school um, college, Hurstbury Point College in Mid Sussex, and um, that was when I started lessons with with Nicholas Searles, um, and he was a um a very different style of teaching it, it was much more strict it was more focused on technique and at the time i thought oh my gosh i'm not sure if i like this you know really? it, it, it was very very tough mm-hmm. and i thought oh god i've been given this you know mozart sonata and you know and I, I played it in my own way you know very flourishy and then he said no ferris it's got to be done you know <laughs> so i wouldn't have enjoyed that very much <laughs> and uh, so i'm just reliving the moment as i'm talking about it um but uh it, it, at the time it was tough but it was all about the molding mm. um and that in retrospect looking at the big picture now it was very clear that he was doing that because he saw the potential in me. Um, he knew that there was, the, you know, the possibility of me actually go, you know, getting into a conservatoire in London or whatever, or, or, or a university or playing piano. Um, but he knew that he only had five years because I was only there from 13 to 18. He only had five years to prepare me. And I think, although he didn't say it at the time, I think that whole journey was part of that preparation, you know. Um, and by the time I got to 16, our relationship changed. It became much more fluid. It became much more, we have a bit of banter. It, it, it uh, would be okay. a little bit more, bit more, more of a, not a friendship, but, but you know what I mean? It wasn't so much of a teacher-student thing. It was much more laid back we had fun in lessons we would you know i could suggest pieces and even if he didn't want me to play them he'd let me play them because he knew that it meant a lot to me an example of that was rhapsody in blue um and actually talking of rhapsody in blue it's actually the 100th anniversary of rhapsody in blue next february really? uh, yeah so gershwin first performed rhapsody in blue i think it was the 11th of maybe maybe some of your Gershwin fans can can, can correct yeah. me on this, but I think it's February 2020 well um uh 1924 mm-hmm. um so 2024 will be the will be the centenary um and but that was the first piano concerto I learned when I was 17 and I played it with the school orchestra at, at Hearst and that was 
that just started my love for Gershwin and he's still my hero to this day, you know, um, such an innovator. Um, I think with Gershwin, it goes beyond the actual music of what people hear. It's that fusion of of classical with jazz, with musical theatre. And that's my whole makeup, even now. It's that crossover between classical and music theatre and jazz. And he influenced so many that came after him, Stephen Sondheim, Leonard Bernstein. um, So, yeah, sorry, a bit of a tangent No, no, (laughs) but I was thinking now when you said that, it's uh, this is how I I, I was just going to say to you, you you were talking about this magical uh, time that your parents had in with music and that must have also influenced you as well because you when i see you play and you uh, behind the piano you have such a natural and such a um, relaxed way of playing you know and it's very much your personality comes through in the in the music it doesn't matter what you're playing you have this you know this almost authority over the piano uh which i love you know it's you make it look fun and you make it look so easy and while you were talking now i was thinking well this is where it comes from i think you know you have this you had this strict and this sort of you know reining you in a little bit by this teacher but you or you kept this spirit this free spirit uh with the music yeah i i, I think it well I mean, I think the goal is always to make it look easy. I, I think that's that that should always be the goal of, of a performance. I mean, I have I have very individual views about about performing and performance, um, and I think that that goes hand in hand with 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 my playing. I mean, the the umbrella, the umbrella, the 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 theme that runs through everything that I do is storytelling. Um, I think whether you're playing a classical piece or a piece of musical theatre, or whether you're singing a song, um, you're telling a story, you know, and and even when I I love watching dance, and one of the reasons that I love watching dance is, first of all, I don't know anything about it, so I can't critique it and I can't comment on it, but it's also storytelling. You know, the dancer is telling a story through what he or she is is doing. and that is, I suppose that's the core of, of what attracts me to art is, is the storytelling, the narrative of, you know, and also sometimes the story is not immediately obvious. Sometimes you have to make up your own story, but whatever happening, whatever's happening is implying a story. Um, whereas you have some composers that have a very clear story in mind when they're actually composing the work. Um, and that's why I'm always so fascinated in in, in the process. I'm, I've always been far more fascinated in the process than the result. Um, I think the result is important. We've got to know where the end line is. We've got to know where the deadline is. Um, but the process, whenever I'm making something or performing something or recording something, it's always the moment in the studio because then you're in a safe place. You have people around you that you trust. You're in there with your engineer, your producer, and nobody else is hearing this work yet. Um, and it can be changed. You know, if you don't like a take, you can retake it. You can do it again. Obviously, you don't have that luxury in a live performance. Yeah. But hopefully, if you're doing a tour, you can say to yourself, well, I'll do it differently tomorrow, you know, at the next venue. Um, but that's a very, very interesting um topic that I like to think about myself sometimes is that you know when you're recording you you have that flexibility of doing it again or or doing another take or changing this little bit but then there comes that that all I find it a terribly difficult time I don't know how other artists feel it but there comes that time when the mix is done and the master's done and then it's going to go off to be released that's it sort of then no longer becomes your property. It, it, it's it's then in the public domain. It's in the big wide world. Everyone will have their opinion about it. Um, but I'm never really interested in that side of it because all that I'm interested in is me and my piano in the recording studio. When it's released, that it, I, I completely disassociate myself with it. Mm-hmm. It's then somebody else's. If they like it, very nice. If they don't, that's absolutely fine. It's no reflection on me because it's it's then theirs. It's not mine anymore. Um, 
in a live perspective, um, it's a sort of a, a different struggle, not a struggle, but it's a different experience in the sense that the people that come to a concert, that's the only time that the music will be played like that. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. Because if it's a tour, they can come the next day, but it will be a different show. It'll be a different vibe. The audience might be different. If you're outside, it might be colder. It might be warmer. You know, <laughs> there's all these elements that will yeah. make it feel different. Um, so I suppose that's the nice thing about a recording is that once you've recorded something, it's it will always be like that. And I think that's why it's – I'm very particular about getting recordings absolutely perfect and the way I want them. I was going to ask now if you're a perfectionist in that sense. Um, I think perfectionist is the wrong word because I don't okay. think that anything can ever be perfect. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's got to be, if I have a vision for something, if I'm producing an artist or if I'm working on something of my own, um, I like to get it as close to to that vision as I can. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're working on your own, you can be very tough on yourself. You can say, come on, Dom, you know, this has got to be better. Let's do it like this. This is not what, you know, you, you, you can do it better than this or you can do it yeah. differently. If you're working with another artist, if you're a producer and you're working with another artist, um, obviously you've got to do your thing if I'm playing for somebody. But then it's a different skill. Then, then it's, you know, in making that artist be the best that they can be. Okay. Yeah. And um, that's a different responsibility, you know, but uh, I tr always try to get the best out of them. Um, but you just don't know how they're going to be on the recording day. They might be tired. They might have a sore throat. If they're playing an instrument, they might have had a bad morning or, or whatever. You just don't know. So it's, I think when you're producing an artist, it's, um, it's the skill of reading the person. It's not a, just about the music. I think a lot of, uh, the trap that a lot of producers fall into is they focus only on the music, whereas the music, I would say, is 25% of the portion of, of, of what you're looking at. The rest of it is ensuring that the artist is happy. Um, do they feel like that it's the best performance that they can give? You know, allowing them the voice to speak, to voice their concerns. And, you know, when you bring an artist into a studio, they can often feel quite overwhelmed by the situation. Um, you know, is it okay for me to put my opinion forward? Um, and I think that's very, very important for the same reason, because once that recording is mixed and finished and done, it's much more difficult to then go back and change it. Whereas, you know, if you've got a point, if you've got something that you want to say, you've got to say it there and then because you can just go in and do another take. It's no problem. <laughs> yeah. But do you think the experience that your, uh, so your dad had uh, was in that situation or he had that experience, do you think you've learned from that or did you get something from that from, you know, from, because you said it was a magical time uh, that must be in the studio. So th do you try to create that also, that magical time in a studio? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose when I was young, I remember sort of, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, my dad had this studio set up, my mum and dad were recording and, you know, there'd be the reel-to-reel -reel tape machines and I'd go in and learn how to lace up, the, the you know, to, to really? put the tape machine yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And then he would teach me about, you know, if you had a 16-track tape recorder, let's say, you know, this is the button so that the track is armed. If you press record, it will wipe what's on there. Where uh -huh. you press it again, it's safe. You know, it, it, it so those little things. And the he taught me all like the, the how the mixer worked and the treble, the bass, the EQ, all of these sort of things. So that was a a very useful grounding to have, um, and that teaches you the. The, the technical side of it. Um, but then there were other people that, that taught me the, you know, how to deal with things on the day. I always use the, the driving analogy because when you drive a car, the actual driving of the car is the easy bit, I think. You know, it's yeah, everything yeah. else that can happen on the day when you drive up to a junction and someone pulls out here and you don't. You know, if you liken that to a studio, the actual 
working the machines and doing your job and you know the technical side of it of you know let's go back to bar 24 let's drop in here that's all that that is the part that you can rehearse you just do more and more of it the part that always keeps me interested is working with a new artist because you you, you don't know what the vibe is going to be oh, yeah. like today you don't know how they're going to be you don't know what their temperament's going to be like and in the studio, the artist is always the person that you have to facilitate, you know. So everyone in the studio, the engineer, the producer, you may have to alter your style of how you would normally approach a session in order to facilitate the artist and make sure that you're getting the best performance from them. Uh, because they might not be used to doing 12, 15 takes in a row. Oh, yeah. You know, they, yeah. They might want to do the song in sections or they may want to just do a little bit and then come into the control room and listen to it so they can hear what the sound is like. Um, so just little things like that. And that always keeps me fascinated by the recording process. Uh, I'm currently working with a, with a lot of art, a lot of young artists, and they all operate in a very, very different way. And, you know, once you've been working with them for a while, you sort of, before you go into the session, you think, right, here are the little idiosyncrasies of this artist mm -hmm. that you need to be aware of and how they operate. And when you do an 11 or 12 hour recording day, you think, okay, between the hours of three and five, this is normally their lull. So let's not, let's not put a really complicated song in that part of the day. Oh, let's okay. yeah. either take a break or put something more straightforward in that, in that section. Um, some artists like to go in with the most complicated thing in the morning and the most technical thing because their mind is most alert. Um, others like to do that sort of thing in the evening. So those sort of choices are very, very important. And they could even be overlooked that, you know, some producers or whatever come in and think, oh, we'll just record. It's all got to be, for me anyway. I mean, everyone's got their own way of doing things. Yeah. So always make sure that, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the artist and thinking, how would they like to, to operate? Well, I think we should also appreciate recordings more. If I hear what you're saying about all the things that you need to consider and all the, you know, the whole routine. Uh, so it's, we, we just listen to the music, but there's a lot behind it as well. So that we don't really always realize. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's without, you know the, the the what I call the the logistics. You know, mm -hmm. producer's role is all is also you know booking the studio and handling the budget and all of these things. So you know, I think a, a what back in the day you had a music producer and then you had somebody that dealt with you know more of the logistics. Usually, the record label would would, would handle that sort of thing. Nowadays, you know, record labels certainly in, in this country tend to have more of a, you know, hands-off approach if you're working with an independent okay. artist. So, you know, they would say to you, right, well, look, here's the budget. This is the delivery date of the recording. Um, off you go, you know, and then it's up to you which studios you want to book and where you want to go. And so then it's down to the producer to work all that out, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's, it, that's how you learn that, you know, it's, it's very yeah. enjoyable doing that that's that side of things because it's you know, I, I always think nowadays in this sort of new world of social media and and self-promotion with young artists um when i went to music conservatoire um we were taught about the music and that's great but we weren't taught about how to do your tax return and how to yeah find an agent and how to do your concerts and and what to do in a recording studio and you know all of these things you 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 learn in the big wide world in, in your 20s and you know i think that's what your 20s are for to to immerse yourself in that and be able to make mistakes that you need to make so that then when you get to maybe you know your 30s or whatever you know you you then feel like you've done enough groundwork to feel confident enough to say, you know, I have a plan, I have a vision, this is what I want to do. Mm. But now talking about social media, I saw also on Instagram that you uh, sang with your mum, you did a concert with your mum. 
Yes. Amazing. I loved it. But <laughs> oh, she's got a wonderful voice, a wonderful voice. Uh, she's been singing a very, very long time. Um, she's worked with some wonderful artists, Tony Bennett, when she was younger, um, and uh, did some incredible shows alongside her writing, songwriting. Um, and I think that was very, it was nice to have that balance of my dad more on the recording side, my mum more on the sort of live performance side. And uh, all of my theatrical influence, I think I get from... from really? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. our whole family, like going back to my grandparents, my great-grandparents, it was, I have this, this heritage of performance like my great-grandparents were in an accordion band in the 1920s 1930s that used to tour around the uk they were called macari and his dutch serenaders and then my grandparents my grandfather owned a, a music shop in them called macari's which sold the beatles and all of these incredible bands their first guitars and first amps guitar amps wow. so it, you know I think the history of my family is is very interesting and, and I'm always so interested in each little detail that, that influenced the next generations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but what is it like to, to perform with your mum? Because if I think if I think uh, sometimes when I do something with my son, he argues with me a little bit. <laughs> well, when I was young, when I was younger, my mum and I used to do a lot of shows together. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, we used to. So she would sing, and I would then go and play the piano to accompany her. Yeah. And again, that was all part of, I guess, a, a great groundwork for me, a great mm. training ground for me to oh, be yeah. in front of audiences the whole time. Um, and you know you learn what to do and you learn more importantly what not to do um and uh she provided me with that you, you know she'd say right come on pl play unchained melody you know and sing this oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was all playing and then and then it, and then it was singing but obviously the, i think the video you saw was um she was singing a cole porter number um Every time I, every time we say goodbye. Yes, yes, that's and, right. Yeah. And um, I was playing for, and she, it's great. I mean, that was actually on a, that was actually filmed on a ship. On a, I, I play on a ship, a seaborne cruise line. Oh, okay. And I go on there from time to time, and and just for a week at a time, and and I go on there and do do a couple of shows, and um, uh, she came on, and it, well, I was halfway through my show. And I say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Glow Makari. And she came up. And, oh, amazing. Your mother is a stunning woman, really. Yeah. she. She's, um, I think what's really interesting about, you you know, having that influence is mm -hmm. that uh, you you get introduced to me, to lots of different styles of music at a very young age. Um, and um, I think that is very very important to be a, a, a rounded musician um because a lot of my a lot of my peers a lot of my contemporaries were were studying very intensely but on a on a single genre whether that be classical or whether that be jazz or music production in pop music but one thing influences the other mm. you know that that there's a vertical intensity for each genre, but there's also a huge horizontal crossover for each genre because one thing influences the other. If you listen to some of the early ABBA recordings, um, some of the early Beatles recordings, um, you know, they are all influenced by music that happened maybe the generation before. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a lot of the influence that I, that I have taken from my parents and from other mentors um i have had mentors that were very specific to a particular genre and then you you know that you're not going to be immersed in that genre but you take what you need you take what you can um obviously they would be at a much higher level in that genre than i am yeah. because they're a specialist but you would take you would understand what you can and then use that and integrate that with 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 other with other genres and that's always fascinated me like that show that that gloria my mum performed in um we do a number like that and then i would 
then go and play a classical piece or or, or, or something else. You know, I think that crossover of of genres is a is a um, very important for yourself, not for, not not necessarily for a public facing perspective, but for yourself, for your musical soul to um, to explore these 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 different colors, these different flavors um, in in the music. I think that's that's very very important. Yeah. But do you but do you still have a preference? Do you, is there still something where you think okay, this genre is something that I really enjoy much more to play? Um, well, to play and to listen to are two different. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think we talked about choral music earlier, English cathedral choral music. I think there's a when you're young you know, obviously the wiring in your brain and how that wiring is formed, you know, you're very impressionable um, to the people that are influencing you around you. And when I was young, I had this enormous impression on English cathedral music through my mentor, Michael. Um, and he, every week we were singing different anthems, settings, and when I hear it now, which is very rare because you don't go out and about, you know, you're not out in a cafe and suddenly, yeah, you know, yeah. Stanford or, 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 or Parry would come on. The <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think it's music that you have to go to. It's not going to come to you. You have to go mm -hmm. to it. Um, and I remember um, those days of, of, of singing in a choir. And, and I think when you do sing in a choir, that in itself teaches you a huge amount because especially if you're singing a cappella, because you're listening to the parts around you um and you're you know in a choir say you're doing i don't know satb harmony soprano alto tenor bass you know and you're a soprano obviously if you're the top line um then that's that's lovely and you're singing the melody you're singing the tune but you've got these underparts that are anchoring the harmony underneath you. And I think when you're young, it's subconscious. You don't really realize how much education you're getting by listening to that. Um, I think it, it, it's, you know, you're just thinking, oh, this is the harmony. I'm just singing the melody. Yeah. But then when you move to the, you know, as your voice changes and you're not so young anymore, you might move to the alto line or the tenor line or even the bass line. And then you, you appreciate then that you are almost in a choral sandwich, um, and you've got then you've then got the treble line, the soprano line above you, and yet now you have to hold your own line. But because you've had that experience of singing in a choir as a as a you know as a young treble for you know three, four, five, six years, um, it it completely changes the approach to the um, to the thing. But listening, I think it's, everything is to do with. Um, with listening, I think that's the single most important thing. Um, in terms of playing music, I don't have a preference at all. Mm -hmm. I think if I was to have a preference, I think it would upset the balance of, of, of what I do. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're often led by opportunity in the sense that, you know, if I'm producing an artist, that artist might be um, au fait with a, with a certain style, like some of my artists are quite crossover in their genre. So, it's a classical influence, but with a poppy approach. Okay, yeah. Um, so I then need to go into that genre. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm practicing for a concert, you know, I would I would prepare in that genre. I don't really play at home, to be honest with you. I don't. Oh, really? No. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like silence is important, as important to me as That's the interesting, yeah. yeah. Because it goes back to that whole thing of mm -hmm. quieting the mind, and I think... If your mind is empty, that's when the inspiration can come. Um, obviously, if I'm working something out or if I'm doing something, or sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, I'll get a, pour a glass of wine and, you know, late at night and I'll try something out. But but those times are are rare. I have to be feeling it at the time. <laughs> but you were talking now about the choral music and, and actually um, I lived in Windsor for, a, for seven years, yeah, and I used to go to the... Uh, St. George's Chapel there at Windsor Castle and they had uh, five o'clock 
that evening song. I didn't go every afternoon, but many afternoons I went because they were then, the choir was singing and that was so um, relaxing to listen to. And yeah. I, I found it really in, in that uh, that the acoustic and the the sound and and and, and it this choral music was really um, for me always so relaxing. I, I always felt as if I went to a spa or something. You know that feeling of whew, when you come out. So uh, it's it's actually yeah so true what you're saying about the choral music. Yeah, I think it, mm -hmm. it for me it's all to do with fusion because um, talking of that. Um, rounded approach to music um i think that i don't know if it's unique but i you know i do have colleagues that that are quite paralleled in their interests to mine um but they're very few I, I know a lot of specialists in fields so you know classical specialists jazz specialists pop production specialists and you know if you're making if if you've got a vision that you want to create you want to bring those people in to assist you um, to, 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 you know, to get their expertise in that particular field. But I think if you're the nucleus of a project, which I tend to be when I'm producing other artists or if I'm doing my own work, I think having a rounded approach allows you to, you know, take that influence from the choral music and fuse it if you're doing a pop production. But you know, you know enough about that side of things in terms of operating software and what sounds to use and how to how to work the rhythm section it, it's all to do with that fusion of different styles then of course there's the musical theater which is is a different style again um i used to be a lot more involved with music theater than i am now i used to play a lot of shows and that again um storytelling and how to structure a story because you know a song in a musical the purpose of a song is to you know explore the character or, or to move the plot forwards um and that taught me a lot about structure in terms of how to structure a musical piece um and and you know if you look inside of the music in a musical it's not just the song and the lyrics that that move the story along or 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 um, associate with a character. It's also the instrumentation and the, the color of the music. I mean, Stephen right. Sondheim is, is the master of that. If you look at you know some of his early work, um, uh, you know, Company Follies, it, you know, you can really see a picture painting going on in the instrumentation and the orchestration of the work, um, which gels perfectly with the sentiment of the narrative that is happening at that time um so that that was a very very you know exciting 15 year period to explore i still do music theater i still get involved with shows um but it tends to be more now in a advisory and creative capacity rather than going to perform a, a musical or, or going to conduct a musical let's say um but i still enjoy it i still i still like listening to to um more obscure works that that maybe could have deserved more commercial success that didn't oh, is it? Mm -hmm.